Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already... Get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. This season, we're reaching beyond my own collection of interviews to bring you voices from the Studs Terkel Radio Archive. The archive holds more than 5,000 programs that the pioneering oral historian and broadcast legend recorded for WFMT Radio in Chicago between 1952 and 1997. And that's where we found a 1959 interview with Lorraine Hansberry, the writer and activist best known for her landmark play, A Raisin in the Sun. It was inspired by her family's battle against housing segregation in Chicago, where Lorraine was born in 1930. When she was seven, her parents bought a house in a white neighborhood in defiance of a covenant that banned sales to African Americans. In their new neighborhood, Lorraine was the target of verbal and physical abuse. And one night, white vandals threw a chunk of concrete through a window, narrowly missing her. Lorraine's father, who was a prosperous businessman, was often away for work which left Lorraine's mother to guard the family. She kept a pistol at the ready. In A Raisin in the Sun, it's the working-class younger family that comes face-to-face with segregation and racism. The play earned Lorraine the New York Drama Critics Circle Award for Best American Play. She was the first black playwright to win the award and its youngest ever recipient. Lorraine died when she was only 34. She had never publicly acknowledged that she was a lesbian. But in 1957, she wrote two letters to a magazine published by the Daughters of Belitis, the nation's first organization for lesbians. In the letters, she voiced her support for the group and drew analogies between the social and political struggles of women, lesbians, and African Americans. A year later, she published four lesbian-themed stories under the pseudonym Emily Jones. By then, Lorraine had quietly separated from her husband, Robert Nemiroff, a Jewish songwriter and book editor. It's now May 12, 1959, and Lorraine Hansberry is in conversation with Studs Terkel at her mother's Chicago apartment. She's visiting from New York, where A Raisin in the Sun has been playing to enthusiastic crowds on Broadway. Uh, Lorraine, mm-hmm. may, may I? Sure. I'm going to call you Studs. <laughs> a question is often, I'm sure, has asked you many times. You may be tired of it. Someone comes up to you and says, this is not really a Negro play, Raisin in the Sun. 
They say this mm. is a play about anybody. Now, what do you say? That's an excellent question. Uh, because invariably, this has been the point of reference. People are trying... What they, I know what they're trying to say. What they're trying to say is that this is not what they consider the traditional treatment of the Negro in the theater. They're trying to say that it isn't a propaganda play, that it isn't a protest no play, play, and that it isn't something that hits you over the head and the other remarks which have become clichés themselves as a matter of fact and discussing this kind of material. So what they're trying to say is something very good. Uh, they're trying to say that they believe that uh, the characters in our play transcend category. However, it's an unfortunate way to try and do it because I believe that one of the most sound ideas in dramatic writing is that in order to create the universal, you must pay very great attention to the specific. In other words, I've told people that not only is this a Negro family, specifically and definitely culturally, but it's not even a New York family <laughs> or a Southern Negro family. It is specifically Southside South Chicago, uh, that kind of care, that kind of attention to the detail of reference and so forth. In other words, I think people will, ex to the extent they accept them and believe them as who they're supposed to be, to that extent they can become everybody. So I was, it's definitely a Negro play before it's anything else. Universality, I think, emerges from truthful identity of what is. I don't know what everybody's talking about when they talk about drama in American theater that has been hitting them over the head on the Negro question. They keep alluding to some mysterious mm. a body of material which allegedly did this. I, for one, can't recall that we have had anything approaching uh, a great number of protest plays or so-called social plays about Negroes. Uh, it seems to me there's a preoccupation and a sense of guilt or something that some, that some elements are so afraid of what they feel that they're already anticipating something that hasn't been true. This is a very interesting comment <laughs> here. Uh, we need a few protest say, plays, as a matter of fact. I'm thinking of Walter Lee Younger. Hmm. You call him the, the focal character, the protagonist of the play, Walter Lee Younger. I suppose thematically what... What he represents is my own feeling that sooner or later we are going to have to make principled decisions in America about a lot of things. In other words, we've set up some very materialistic and uh, limited concepts of how the world should go. Sooner or later, I think we're going to have to decide on them. In other words, I think it's just as conceivable to uh, create a character today who decides maybe that uh, his whole life is wrong so that he ought to go do something else altogether and really make a completely a complete reversal it isn't just rebellion because rebe rebellion rarely knows what you know what it wants to do when it gets through rebelling even this affirmation against it's a what little revolution no, what may be considered accepted values generally conventional values, let's say, within a framework. In yes, yes. In many cultures, the mother, the woman, is very strong. Mm -hmm. In Negro families, uh, through the years, the mother has always been a sort of pillar of strength, hasn't she? Yes, yes. Those of us who are 
to any degree students of Negro history think this has something to do with the slave society, of course, where she was allowed to a certain degree of, uh, not ascendancy, but of at least control of her family, whereas the male was relegated to absolutely nothing, nothing at all. And this has probably been sustained by the sharecropper system in the South and on up into even urban Negro life in the North. At least that's the theory. These women have become the backbone of our people in a very necessary way. Underground this, railway leaders. Yes, yes. Uh, obviously, the, the most oppressed group of any oppressed group will be its women, you know, obviously, since women, period, are oppressed in society. And if you've got an oppressed group, they're twice oppressed. Mm -hmm. So I should imagine that um, they react accordingly as oppression makes people more militant and so forth and so on than twice militant because they're twice oppressed so that there's a, an assumption of leadership. There was probably a necessity. Why among oppressed peoples the mother will assume a certain kind of uh, role? The play, some will ask you, is this autobiographical? Yes, Yet they your, keep asking your background is not your background culturally may be the place, to some extent background, but it is not specifically. No, it isn't. I've tried to explain this to people. I've come from an extremely comfortable background, materially speaking, and uh, yet uh, I've also tried to explain we live in a ghetto, you know, which automatically means intimacy with all classes and all kinds of experiences. It's not any more difficult for me to know the people that I wrote about than it is for me to know members of my family because there is that kind of intimacy. This is one of the things that uh, the American experience has meant to Negroes. We are one people. I had a reason for choosing this particular class. I guess at this moment the Negro middle class may be from 5 to 6 to 7 percent of our people, the, you know, the comfortable middle class. And I believe that... Uh, they are atypical of the more uh, representative experience of Negroes in this country. Therefore, I have to believe that whatever we ultimately achieve, however we ultimately transform our lives, will come from the kind of people that I chose to portray. That Therefore, they are more pertinent, more relevant, more significant, and most important, most decisive in our political history, and uh, our political future. The little girl, if I may, uh, I want to bring a personal thing, uh, the very charming and alive little sister. Is this slightly autobiographical? Oh, she's stages? very autobiographical, because the truth of the matter is that uh, I enjoyed making fun of this girl, who is myself, eight years ago, you know. I enjoyed making fun of her because I have that kind of confidence about what she represents. I'm not worried about her, you know. Uh, she's precocious, she's over-outspoken, she's everything, you know, which uh, tends to be comic and, uh, you know, people sigh with her and they have one at home like that, you know, and they, they enjoy her for this reason. She's very much alive. Yes. The African suitor, you know, I'll come to something now, mm. this always intrigued me very much. Remember, My I favorite asked, character. He's a remarkable figure. Who is he, what is his meaning in this particular mm. play in contrast to the others? Mm. He represents two things. He represents, first of all, the true intellectual. 
The other thing that he represents is much more overt. I was aware that on the Broadway stage they have never seen an African who didn't have his shoes hanging around his neck, you know, and a bone through his nose or his ears or something. The stereotype. And I thought that even just theatrically speaking, this would most certainly be refreshing, you know. And uh, again, it, it required no departure from truth because the only Africans that I have known, of course, have been African students in the United States who, this boy is a composite of many of them, as a matter of fact, no one guy. And what they have represented to me in life is what this fellow represents in the play, excuse me, and that is the emergence of an articulate and deeply conscious uh, colonial intelligentsia. I'm very much concerned and caught up in the movements of the African peoples toward uh, colonial liberation liberation out of colonialism and he represents that to me in fact in one sense he gives the statement of the play you know I don't know how many people get it but he he does he says she says to him you're always talking about independence and freedom in Africa but what about the time when that happens and then you'll have crooks and petty thieves who come into the to power and they'll do the same things only now they'll be black you know so what's the difference and he says to her that this is virtually irrelevant in terms of history, that uh, when that time comes, there will be Nigerians to step out of the shadows and kill the tyrants, just as now they must do away with the British. Uh, and that history always solves its own questions, but you get to first things first. In other words, this man has no illusions at all. This is a wonderful answer. This he just believes in the order that things must take. He knows that first, before you can start talking about the, what's wrong with the Independence, get it, <laughs> and I'm with him. <laughs> the New York Times quoted you. You, you. you spoke of a certain irritation in seeing plays, so-called, uh, plays about the Negro or such, written by people wholly re uh, removed yes, from the situation. Yes. The whole concept of the exotic, you know, that in Europe they think that, the, well, the gypsy is just the most exotic thing that ever walked across the earth is because he's isolated from the mainstream of European life so that Obviously, the natural parallel in American life is the Negro, <laughs> you know, very exotic. Exciting. So whenever they get ready to do something like uh, a Bizet opera, which involves the gypsies of Spain, uh, it's translated, they think, very neatly into a Negro piece. And uh, I just think this is sort of a bore by now. Aside from being nauseating, stereotype notions are also very dull. I, you know, I think this this said far too... Not often enough that... Uh, it isn't only a matter that Porgy and Bess... I'm talking about the book now because, once again, this is good music. This is beautiful music. I think this is great American music in which the roots of our native opera are to be found someday. But the book, the, the Du Bois Haywood book, uh, not only is that offensive, you know, it isn't only that it insults me because it's... It's a degrading concept and a degrading way of looking at people, but it's bad art because it doesn't tell the truth, and fiction demands the truth. You know, you have to give a many-sided character. In other words, there is no excuse for stereotype. No, no, I'm not talking socially or politically. I'm talking as an artist now. Aesthetically now it's Exactly. Saying. That if, if someone feels that this is a lie, you know, because it's just one half of me, 
then the artist should shudder for reasons other than the NAACP, the responsible artist. Something you just said, art must tell the truth. I think so. It's almost the only place where you can tell it. <laughs> what about writing today, uh, whether it be drama? Uh... There's a young guy in New York who's been one of the exiles who's come home. We're starting a new movement against the 30s. Some of the American kids are coming back now from Paris and Rome. Uh, Jimmy Baldwin. Well, he'd know. gone away. He'd got, he, he left. Back. He <coughs> went. He, enough. Did Baldwin do that, too? Baldwin is yeah. who I'm talking about. Oh, oh James Baldwin. James Baldwin, uh, who is back, and who I think, I don't read novels that much, I'm ashamed to say, for somebody who wants to write one, but I think from what I've read of his essays and some of his fiction, because this is undoubtedly one of the most talented American writers walking around. Well, I think it's obvious that uh, it's no accident that Raisin of the Sun came to be written by Lorraine Hansberry after we've been listening to her now. What about success, this little goddess success? What does it do to you? It, it obviously deprives you of privacy to something. Well, right now it does. Yeah, it does. This one moment here. It does, except that it's wonderful. It's wonderful, and uh, I'm enjoying it. I think it's important. I think there comes a time when you, you, know, you pull the telephone out and you go off and you, you end it. But for the time being, I'm enjoying every bit of it. I've tried to go to everything I was invited to. I, I shouldn't even say this on the air, but so far I've tried to answer every piece of correspondence I get, which gets to be about 20 and 30 pieces a day at this point. But uh, this, I don't have the right to be very personal about the reception to this play, because I think the reception to this play transcends what I did or what Sidney Poitier or Lloyd Richards or Philip Rose or any of us connected with it. I think what it reflects at this moment is that at this particular moment in our country, as backward and as depressed as I, for instance, am about so much of it, I think there's a new affirmative political mood and social mood in our country having to do with the fact that people are finally even getting aware that Negroes are tired and it's time to do something about that question. That I think we went through eight to ten years of misery under McCarthy and all that nonsense, and... Uh, to the great credit of the American people, they got rid of it, and they're feeling like make new sounds, and I'm glad I was here to make one. A Raisin in the Sun wasn't Lorraine Hansberry's final word. As the civil rights movement unfolded, she held America's oppressive society to account in public appearances, editorials, and a new play. Lorraine also fell in love with Dorothy Secules, a politically outspoken blonde 15 years her senior. In 1963, Lorraine's health began to fail, and she spent the next two years battling pancreatic cancer. In her final days, two people she loved kept vigil at her bedside. Her ex-husband Robert, who had spent the rest of his life devoted to tending Lorraine's legacy, and Dorothy. Lorraine died on January 12, 1965. In a tribute written after Lorraine's death, the writer James Baldwin noted the toll racial injustice took on his close friend. Quote, It is not at all far-fetched to suspect that what she saw contributed to the strain which killed her, for the effort to which Lorraine was dedicated is more than enough to kill a man. Nearly a half-century after Lorraine Hansberry died, her estate released some of her personal papers. One of them was a 1960 datebook entry with lists of her likes and hates. 
On her likes list were items like Mahalia Jackson's music, Dorothy Seacule's eyes, and that first drink of scotch. On her hate list, things like Too Much Mail and My Loneliness. One item made both lists, my homosexuality. Many thanks to everyone who makes Making Gay History possible. Senior producer Nahani Rouse, co-producer and deputy director Inga Dataya, audio engineer Jeff Town, researcher Brian Faree, photo editor Michael Green, genealogist Michael Leclerc, and our social media team, Christiana Pena, Nick Porter, and Daniel Lorenko. Special thanks to Jenna Weiss-Berman and our founding editor and producer, Sarah Burningham. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Studios, with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and the One Archives at the USC Libraries. Season 8 of this podcast is produced in association with the Studs Terkel Radio Archive, which is managed by WFMT in partnership with the Chicago History Museum. A very special thank you to Allison Shine-Holmes, Director of Media Archives at WTTW Chicago PBS and WFMT Chicago, for giving us access to Studs Terkel's treasure trove of interviews. You can find many of them at studstirkel.wfmt.com. Season 8 of this podcast has been made possible with funding from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, Proud Chicagoans Barbara Levy Kipper and Irwin and Andrew Press, the Small Change Foundation, and our listeners, including Damon Evans. Thanks, Damon. Stay in touch with Making Gay History by signing up for our newsletter at makinggayhistory.com. Our website is also where you'll find previous episodes, archival photos, full transcripts, and additional information on each of the people and stories we feature. So long, until next time. <laughs>